Go ahead and find 1 Corinthians 13. Might be a few minutes before we get there, but we will be there soon enough. 1 Corinthians 13. As advertised, this is our monthly Q&A night, where you ask a good question and I attempt a half good answer. So here's, uh, here's the question. The word, uh, the word miracle is thrown around loosely today. This, the question is longer than what I have up here. The word miracle is thrown around loosely today. Does God perform miracles today or allow other men to perform miracles today in his name? You'll recall in our uh, final class on the Holy Spirit, where we thought about what the Holy Spirit is up to today, we, uh, we addressed in one part of that study common claims <clears throat> which are made about the Holy Spirit's work today. One of which was the Holy Spirit enables miracles and tongues especially is the one that comes to the fore today. But the Holy Spirit enables miracles today. And in that study, I kind of said, uh, I, I kind of had a cop out. And I said, uh, we had a Q&A uh, question on that. And so we just very briefly and shallowly addressed it. And so today I make good on that uh, promise to come back and address it at some more length. So here's how we, I think we need to begin would you begin, number one, with a definition, and then number two, with a distinction? So, the word miracle is notoriously difficult to define. What is it that we mean when we talk about miracle? Um, it's very easy, I think, to give examples of miracles in the Bible. Um, the plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, Jesus walking on water, virgin births, healing the sick, raising the dead, speaking in tongues, all these are miracles. But thoughtful students of the subject of miracles recognize the difficulty of assigning a definition to what exactly a miracle is. What is it about all of those things that makes them miraculous? Um, and I think the word miracle is actually not self-explanatory. So let's, let's uh, delve into this a little bit. This is, I, I think this is going, you're going to see this is important by the end of our lesson, but bear with me as we talk about definitions. So I, let's start out with an easy definition that we can discard. Um, these days, people use the word miracle often to simply describe something that's surprising or unexpected. Um, you know, a team comes back from a big halftime deficit, and it's a miracle comeback. Um, by that, they mean it was amazing, <clears throat> but I don't think they mean it was literally miraculous in the sense that uh, Bible miracles are. They're products that advertise themselves uh, by how about how great they are through the use of the word miracle. And so we have miracle whip, and we have miracle grow, and as far as I know, there are no miracles involved in making Miracle Whip. Um, and I don't even think it tastes that miraculous or amazing. It's pretty ordinary. But the question hits on the fact. The first part of the question was the word miracle is thrown around loosely today, and that's a true observation. Um, it is thrown around loosely to simply describe anything that's unlikely or unexpected. Um, and I think we can agree whatever the word miracle means, in the Bible it definitely means a whole lot more than that. It's simply something incredible happens. Well, let's, uh, let's try out a different definition. As far as I can tell, a, a more serious-minded attempt at a definition goes something like this. A miracle is something that defies the laws of nature. An intervention of God into the normal processes and the laws of nature. That would be a, a typical description of what a miracle is. And that makes some sense. Um, seas don't part themselves without the intervention of God. Um, dead people don't just get up unless the creator God, the only one who has the ability to give life, unless the creator God reverses death 
and raises someone from the dead. However, I've got to say it is not my favorite definition. A miracle is that which defies the laws of nature, um, partly because it imposes a category on the Bible that the Bible does not impose on itself. It implies that there are processes and laws in nature that operate independently of God and must somehow be broken in order for a quote-unquote miracle to occur. Um, Just to touch on a a bigger issue, um, this understanding of of this thing called the laws of nature um, is something that comes to us from a movement called the Enlightenment and from philosophers like David Hume, and it's quite foreign to the Bible and the world of the Bible. Um, The Bible doesn't have a category of things called natural law where the earth ever operates independently of God. Um, No one really thought that prior to about the year 1700. In the Bible, God's providence is said to uphold creation at all times, that without God's power, without God's providence, it all falls apart. God is the one who sends the rain. God is the one who brings forth the harvest. If those things happen, we are to praise God because he has made them happen. The Bible doesn't countenance any act of, God's, uh, of, of providence on God's earth. God doesn't countenance any of that happening absent God's involvement by some quote-unquote natural process that just happens automatically. The Enlightenment category of natural laws is all about trying to describe something that is happening without reference to God. And I'm just, I just don't think that's something we could ever countenance, something happening like that absent God. So let me, let me delve into this a little bit more. It is also not clear to me that God couldn't do certain things through a quote-unquote natural law that could be regarded as miraculous. It's not clear to me God could use natural laws to do a miraculous thing. So, for example, um, if we classify Noah's flood as miraculous, and I do, and I think most people do, do we know exactly how God brought that about? Was it simply magic where God made it appear Or did massive storm clouds gather themselves and pour rain for weeks in a way that would be comprehensible to a meteorologist who had all the data and he could make sense of that? How did it work? The answer is we don't know. We don't know how it is God brought about that quote-unquote miracle, but I'm not at all ready to say that a, a miracle happened which violated some natural law. It's entirely possible God used nature in comprehensible ways to, say, a scientist in order to bring about his... His, uh, his, his ends, and that wouldn't make it any less miraculous if he did. Or, here's another example. When God predicts the future rise and fall of kingdoms in the book of Daniel, centuries ahead of time, um, exercising his miraculous foreknowledge, the rise and fall of those kingdoms is explainable to a degree by historians in retrospect. We can look back and, and learn about the rise and fall of Babylon or Persia or Rome, And provided the the understanding of the causes and effects of those things are sound by those historians, the explanations, provided that they're sound explanations, do their explanations about natural cause and effect preclude the idea that God still foreknew and brought these events about? Does one explanation exclude another? Does the fact that we could explain it perhaps scientifically mean God wasn't at work in it? No. It's not clear to me that God had to somehow violate a a law of nature in order to accomplish something that was grand and miraculous and incredible. So I don't like the definition, quote, a miracle is when God defies the laws of nature, 
Number one, because the idea that laws of nature are a thing in operation apart from God, this is not a biblical idea, but an enlightenment idea. And number two, it's not clear to me that God hasn't done or couldn't do miraculous things apart from the laws of nature. Am I making any sense so far? Are you with me a little bit? Uh, I'll have to trust that you are. So here is a, here is a third proposal of a definition of miracle. Um, this definition is, is more modest, but I think it's more biblical. It goes something like this. A miracle is a work of God that arouses people's wonder and bears witness to himself. So a miracle is a work of God that arouses people's wonder and is a way in which God bears witness about himself or to himself. In all the miracles of the Bible, something out of the ordinary, something awe-inspiring happens which to any honest-hearted person could only be attributed to God. Now, there are people who witness miracles and do not believe in God. You see this a lot in Jesus' ministry and his miracles, but he talks about the hard-heartedness of those who do so. Now, this definition doesn't make a claim as to whether or not we can name the natural law God is breaking. Uh, It simply says something incredible happens that points to the existence and the power of God. I I think that describes any miraculous event in the Bible, whereas the natural law definition does not explain necessarily every, uh, every miracle in the Bible. So that's my definition that I'm going to proceed with, <clears throat> that a miracle is a work of God that arouses people's wonder and bears witness to himself, to God. Now, here's a distinction. Um, the distinction I want to make is between miracles and miraculous gifts. Miracles and miraculous gifts. This is actually something, I've I got to tell you, I surprised, I, I surprised myself a little bit in this uh, Q&A. Um, this is something that never really occurred to me before, and I double-checked it with several people to make sure I wasn't doing crazy talk. Um, previously, I just had one big pot called miracles that I piled everything into. Okay, the creation of the world, the flood, the burning bush, the Red Sea crossing, the earth swallowing up Korah, Jesus' healings, Jesus' resurrection, tongues at Pentecost, miracles of the apostle, just in the, in the miracle pot. However, there's there's an important distinction I want to make. There are some miracles in the Bible which happen as a unilateral act of God without need for human agency, without the initiative of any human. Creation would be a prime example of that. Calling into existence the universe from nothing, that's that's, uh, the prime miracle. Noah's flood would be an example of that. That's God under his own initiative bringing about that. Or God appearing to Moses in the burning bush, in which the bush is on fire but is not being burned up. That's the initiative of God. The destruction of Sodom would be another. That's the initiative of God doing this awesome, this awesome judgment. So there are miracles in the Bible which happen as unilateral acts of God. And there are other miracles in the Bible which happen because God empowers a person to do miraculous things through the Holy Spirit. And that person, it seems, is sort of given the authority to initiate a miraculous thing. So, for example, Moses and Aaron standing before Pharaoh and his magicians in the court are empowered. God says he's going to empower them to bear witness to him. And so, and so Aaron could throw down his rod and it will turn into a snake. Or the miracles of Elijah would fit this. Elijah was, uh, was the uh, consummate miracle-working prophet, the prophet of power. The apostles in the book of Acts are empowered, empowered to work miracles. So the distinction I'm making is that there are miracles solely initiated by God apart from any human agent. And number two, there are miracles initiated by a person 
to whom God has bestowed the power to work miracles. Does that make sense? So I'm going to proceed from here with that distinction as my guide. First, I want to ask, does God give miraculous gifts of the Spirit today to people? So the question is, does God allow others to perform miracles? That's the first question I want to respond to. Should we expect to find anyone who is empowered to do miraculous things? That's the first thing. And the second question I want to ask, does God himself unilaterally work miracles today, apart from any human agent initiating them? Is that something God said he will or will not do? Is that something we could or could not expect God to do? So that's how we're going to proceed from here. So here's, uh, here's our question. Uh, the last uh, two questions. Number one, does God give miraculous gifts of the Spirit today? First, a, a sort of preface. One thing I'm going to do is to set aside the crazies in my answer. Um, a very cheap and easy tactic, I've employed it, when talking about this, is to just point to the charlatan televangelists, the faith healers, the snake handlers in the hills of Kentucky, in order to make the idea of spiritual gifts look silly today. That's one thing that you can do, and there are plenty of silly examples to point to. But that's also a cheap tactic that doesn't actually address the question. Um, I listened to a debate in preparation for this. I listened to a debate between a, a charismatic, a person who says miracles do happen, people are empowered, and someone who says they are not. I listened to a debate about whether the gifts of the Spirit were for today, and the Pentecostal acknowledge a lot of the charlatanism and abuses among many Spirit-empowered faith healers and modern-day prophets and things like that. And the Pentecostal himself acknowledged a lot of the abuses and silliness and craziness that goes on. The fact that there exist evil people who want to use the gifts of the Spirit for their own selfish ends doesn't rule out that there could exist people who genuinely are empowered by the Spirit. The fact that there are crazies doesn't mean that there aren't genuines. You know, there were charlatans and opportunists in the first century like Simon the Sorcerer, and his existence didn't mean there weren't people who did actually have those gifts, like Paul and Peter. So I have sort of two, uh, two lines of thought here. First, I want to look at 1 Corinthians 13, where Paul foresees the obsolescence of the spiritual gifts. And then second, I want to make a point about the mechanics of how spiritual gifts seem to be distributed and doled out in the first century. So first, 1 Corinthians 13. Um, this is a chapter that's part of a much larger context in which the Corinthian Christians were absolutely obsessed with spiritual gifts. Who had them? Which was the best spiritual gift? Whose gift took priority in worship? Who got to stand up in front of people and display their gift? Um, how their gift marked them out as special? And at the heart of Paul's response is this great chapter on love in 1 Corinthians 13 in which Paul poetically describes the superiority of love to any spiritual gift you could possibly imagine. 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge... And if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. So whatever else we have to say about the miraculous spiritual gifts, he mentions tongues and prophecy here. We need to know, first of all, they are not the pinnacle of discipleship and they are not somehow marks of maturity, 
a sign that I have arrived and I am a special person in God's kingdom. Whatever else we say, they are not that, never were. Love, not miraculous gifts, but love is the pinnacle of discipleship and the mark of maturity. And so the first thing I want to say is, even if miraculous spiritual gifts did exist today, I think there is still a critique of modern Pentecostalism here in which the spiritual gifts, today in modern Pentecostalism, spiritual gifts, in particular the gift of tongues, although they misunderstand what that is even, but in which spiritual gifts, they say, are really at the heart of discipleship and are the sign you have arrived as a Christian. It is a mark of salvation in many Pentecostal churches. To a church in the first century who genuinely did have the gifts, even to them, Paul says, they are not at the center of your identity. Absent love, they are at the very least useless and even more so divisive and destructive. And they were being that in the Corinthian church. Now he goes on to describe love in really wonderful and poetic ways in the next few verses. I want to skip down to verse 8 now. 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 8. This is verse 8. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So the whole paragraph here presents a contrast between the permanent and the temporary. Paul reminds this group wrangling over spiritual gifts that the things they're wrangling over are in the temporary category the soon-to-be-obsolete category. What Paul foresees here is a time when miraculous gifts of the Spirit will cease, when their use in revealing and confirming God's mind will be obsolete, I think because the full revelation of God that he's going to give will have been given. And so Paul basically points to a time when we would live in maturity, when we would be without a constant need for a validation of the message, Paul envisions a time when someone can simply stand up and proclaim God's revealed word without a shout from the audience of, hey, when will you do a miracle so I can take you seriously? Paul envisions a time when we can say, here is what God has said. You can choose to listen or not. You can choose to abide in God's love and emulate it or not. And what I'm saying is, I think that time has arrived where God has given us his word, when we can hear and respond to it based on that self-attesting word without the miracle show. Now, I also need to say this. If you, if you talk to a Pentecostal, I've talked to a few, um, inevitably there isn't going to be an argument made based on their personal experience, their subjective experience. And of course, that can only go so far <clears throat> because they've had ex- that experience. And if I haven't, then we're just kind of even But they will say, I've seen or experienced the Spirit falling on people, empowering them to speak in tongues, empowering them to prophesy, empowering them to heal. 
Again, aside from the issue of what tongues actually are, not gibberish, but known languages uh, that, are, that are spoken without, without study, without learning. But aside from that, all I can do is simply appeal to my own experience where I can simply say I've simply not seen anyone replicate what I see in the book of Acts. That doesn't prove, their subjective experience doesn't prove anything, neither does mine. It's just to say that, well, we're just kind of even. We're just kind of even on that. We'll just have to go back to God's word. So in 1 Corinthians 13, my contention is this, and I don't know everything about this chapter. There are some interesting things here, but it's my contention that God is no longer empowering men to do miraculous gifts of the Spirit. Paul said the gifts have an expiration date. There was coming a time when the gifts would be obsolete. And what I'm saying is, I think that time has arrived. So, let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12 now. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians chapter 12. So my second line of reasoning here comes from sort of the mechanics of spiritual gifts. Um, Who had them and how they got them. This is 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 12. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. He calls here, Paul calls here miracles, signs, mighty works. He calls them Uh, signs of a true apostle. Um, Spiritual gifts are one of the huge calling cards of the apostles in the New Testament. God didn't just expect their testimony of what they had witnessed in Christ to be believed simply because they said so. God God empowered them to do things that essentially said, believe me because God says so. They were to be signs in which uh, it proved their authenticity. It made people say, this must be a message from God because the work that he has just performed could only be performed by someone who is from God. And so Peter doesn't just stand and preach in the temple. He first heals a lame beggar in Acts 3, which fills the people with wonder and amazement at what had happened, which opens the door for the message Peter preaches at Solomon's portico in Acts chapter 3. Spiritual gifts are one of the calling cards of the apostles. Jesus said, wait in Jerusalem until power from on high comes upon you. And that happens. Spiritual gifts are a calling card of the apostles. Now, As you read further in the book of Acts, it becomes clear apostles weren't the only ones who had spiritual gifts. It didn't end with them. They weren't the only ones. There were men like Philip, for example, a man on whom the apostles laid their hands in Acts 6, which seems to be the means by which those gifts were passed to him. Philip went out preaching in Samaria, and Philip's message that he preached was confirmed by the signs that he did in Acts uh, Acts 8 and verse 6. These signs included exorcisms. They included healing the lame and healing the paralyzed. Go with me to Acts chapter 8. So in Acts chapter 8, Philip is preaching in Samaria. He's working miracles in conjunction with his preaching. People were being converted. People were being baptized because of his preaching. But it becomes clear that becoming a Christian didn't somehow bestow on you the special miraculous gifts of the Spirit. Now, I do think in Acts 2.38 we're told that when people are baptized they receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, but the gift of the Holy Spirit is not miraculous gift. The gift of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2.38, I believe, is salvation. Salvation is the gift of the Spirit. Just a side note. It's clear in Acts 8 when people are baptized they don't automatically have these miraculous spiritual gifts. Conversion is one thing. Being empowered to speak in tongues, being empowered to prophesy is quite another thing. That becomes obvious in this text. This is Acts 8 and verse 12. 
Acts 8 and verse 12. When they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, this is Simon the sorcerer, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he, Simon, was amazed. So again, conversion is one thing, but the ability to do signs and wonders is another. Simon here believes and is baptized, but Simon is not able to do any of Philip's signs. His conversion didn't bestow on him the same power that Philip had. This is verse 14. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Verse 17 Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. So now you have converts in verse 14. New converts, people are in Christ, but are without the spiritual gifts. If they are to have them, there must be apostles come and lay hands on them. Notice Philip, who himself was empowered to do signs, but is not an apostle, Philip could not empower them to do that. In order to do that, they have to call in Peter and John. It's Simon in verse 18 who really makes this connection between an apostle and between the ability to bestow these gifts on others. Verse 18, Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. And so Simon sees dollar signs, not just in working these signs himself, but in the ability to bestow them on others. And in order to try to gain that ability, he goes to the apostles, not Philip, he goes to the apostles to try to buy it, buy this ability. Of course, he fails spectacularly. The point is, though, to be empowered to work these signs, it seems you either, number one, need to be an apostle, or number two, you need to have an apostle come lay his hands on you. The point is, miracles seem to always be just one step removed from an apostle and never two. You have to be an apostle or you have to have your hands laid on, uh, laid on you by an apostle. Acts 19, I think, records a sort of parallel event. There Paul meets about a dozen disciples who have been baptized under John's baptism, but never baptized with the baptism of the new covenant. After teaching them, Paul baptizes them in the name of Jesus. And then after he baptizes them, Then he lays his hands on them, which results in them, quote, speaking in tongues and prophesying, Acts 19 and verse 6. So the same thing. Conversion is one thing. Being empowered with spiritual gifts is another. And it seems that the mechanism for passing on those gifts was to have the hands of an apostle laid on you. My simple point here is, if there are no apostles today, who is there to lay hands on people to bestow the gifts? Who is there to bestow gifts? So... Those are my, uh, my sort of go-tos. Those are the most, I think, intuitive ways of talking about this. Does God give miraculous gifts of the Spirit today? Uh, number one, no, because Paul himself foresaw uh, the obsolescence of these gifts. And number two, the mechanics of it just don't seem possible today. Now, of course, for any argument that, that, that I haven't addressed, there, w- there would be a counter-argument, but I don't have time to do all of that. Those are just the ones that seem most intuitive, intuitive to me. Now, let's move on to a third question. Or second question, does God himself work miracles today? So, remember the distinction I made in the beginning between miraculous gifts 
and simply miracles, which unilaterally are done by God. Um, I do believe it's the case miraculous gifts of the Spirit have ceased. God empowering people to work miracles, I believe, has ceased. But the other question is, have miracles ceased? Would it be possible for God to unilaterally do an extraordinary work that confounds our expectations and arouses our wonder and bears witness to himself? I think that's a different question than our second, our second point. So this is James chapter 5. Go with me to James chapter 5. <coughs> James chapter 5. So I think we can make a distinction between the, gift, uh, the gifts of the Spirit, the gifts, uh, the empowerment to do miracles, and just miracles themselves. And here I think we can make a distinction between the gift of healing and simply healing. The gift of healing would be like when Jesus heals the woman with the hemorrhage in Mark chapter 5. Remember it says when she touched him, Jesus felt power going out of him. And so Jesus has the power and the authority vested in him to heal. When she touches him, the power goes from him to her. And so Jesus is an agent there. He is one on whom the Spirit the spirit has fallen. I think we could distinguish that, someone who has the gift of the Spirit, the possession of the spiritual gift of healing, I think we could distinguish that from simply healing. So this is James 5 and verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins will be forgiven. So James 5 seems to be a situation where there are no spiritually gifted collection of elders, but rather just regular old elders who through a prayer of faith access the power of God, and it is that prayer which accesses God's power that heals or raises up a person who has been sick. And so there seems to be a difference between the power going out from the spirit-empowered Jesus into the woman in order to heal her and the elders who simply appeal to God to act on a sick person's behalf. There is an authority vested in Jesus that heals without the solicitation of anyone else. The elders in James 5 don't have that. The healing here comes only through their solicitation of God through prayer. It is the prayer that raises up the sick. Now here's my question. What do you call this? What do you call what's happening here? A sick person is headed downhill. A prayer is offered by godly elders. God responds by raising up that sick person. An outcome is achieved that would not have happened without prayer. Now you say, I wouldn't call that a miracle. Okay, it all depends on what your definition of miracle is. Let me, let me go down another, uh, another example. This is 2 Kings chapter 20. 2 Kings chapter 20. What about Hezekiah's healing? Hezekiah's healing doesn't occur through uh, mediation of some sign worker, of some miracle worker. This is 2 Kings 20 and verse 3. Second Kings 20 and verse 3. Now, O Lord, this is Hezekiah praying to God, King Hezekiah. Now, O Lord, please remember how I have walked with you, walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart, and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. So he is appealing to God. He has a death sentence over his head. He doesn't have long. He is appealing to God to lengthen his life. And God answers Hezekiah's prayer. This is verse 5. Turn back and say to Hezekiah, so God speaking to Isaiah to relay this message. 
Thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will heal you. On the third day, you shall go up to the house of the Lord, and I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you in this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. So here is a healing as well as a deliverance from an enemy nation. Here is a healing which involves a prayer from a man and then an answer from God. And the answer says that the prayer you offered altered my plans and caused something different to happen in your body that would have happened absent the prayer. Hezekiah's body was going to do one thing, die soon. But suddenly it will do something else. It will live another 15 years. All because he prayed and God responded with power to his prayer. Now what do you call that? Do you call that a miracle? Did God use natural means? Did something biologically happen that a scientist could explain? Or was it simply a zapping? We just have no idea. Could a story like this happen today? What we're really back to now is the sticky question of what is a miracle in the first place? Could we term a healing that results from prayer, could we term that a miracle? If a healing occurs because of the prayer that would not have happened absent the prayer and would have not have happened simply through the medical interventions of our scientific knowledge today, if a healing happens because of a prayer, if we believe that's possible and if that happens, what in the world do we call that? And to accommodate the definition I don't like about natural laws, is it possible God could contravene the laws of nature within somebody's body today? Is it possible God could interrupt, interrupt the natural biological processes in order to heal? Is it possible God could do that today? I am not prepared to say that he can't or that he won't. I believe God answers prayer, and I believe God providentially, providentially governs the world. I do not believe we live in a materialistic universe where atoms are just banging around and the only things that happen are the things that can be explained by science um, and there can only be natural explanations for everything that happens. That is not the universe we live in. We live in an enchanted world. The only reason there is something rather than nothing is because God did something utterly miraculous. He created a universe from nothing. We live in a universe that only exists because of a miraculous word from God. And deism, which is the belief that God created the world and then stepped away from it and let it run on its own steam and just be governed by natural processes, deism is not biblical, not even close. So, if you want to call God's interventions in the world, where God acts and God causes something to happen which wouldn't have happened without his intervention, if you want to call those interventions miraculous, depending on what your definition is, frankly, I'm not sure how I can argue with you. If somebody with a serious illness, after undergoing treatments which do not make them any better, suddenly gets better without any new treatment, and if they and their loved ones have been earnestly in prayer, and if the doctors can only scratch their heads, what do we call that? It's hard to say. That's happened before, you know. We could say maybe they would have gotten better without a single prayer. Maybe the problem is we just don't know the materialistic scientific explanation. That's possible. Or maybe they got better because of prayer. We're Christians, after all, who believe in prayer. Now, these are all examples about healing. Let me add a few more examples 
from Acts of unilateral, unilateral miracles of God which happen absent a, a spirit-empowered person. Uh, there are unilateral miracles of God in Acts which don't happen through the agency of any human. So, for example, in Acts 4.31, <clears throat> the Christians there are gathered because Peter's in prison, sort of a prayer vigil. And we are told that as they're praying, the house is shaken as the apostles are inside and the, and the disciples are inside praying. Uh, side note, how is the house shaken? Through natural means or unnatural means? If God caused an earthquake which seismologists could explain through the movement of tectonic plates, if that's how God did it, does that make it somehow unmiraculous? I don't think so. So that's an example of a miracle that, that occurs. In Acts 5, and then again in Acts 12, there are sudden deaths, which are clearly and obviously judgments of God. The first in Acts 5 is Ananias and Sapphira, who are struck dead because of their blasphemy. And then in Acts 12 is Herod, who is accepting praise as a god, and God strikes down as well. I don't think any human could work those. I don't think there's any explanation except God decided to do a great and miraculous work. Am I prepared to say God could never do that today? Am I prepared to say God could never make a house shake if he wanted to, and that he hasn't done that? Am I prepared to say God couldn't act to judge someone on the spot? And I just got to say, frankly, I don't think I can say he couldn't and hasn't done that. So, so let me wrap up with a, few, with a few concluding thoughts. To return to our original question, does God perform miracles today or empower others to? First of all, I do not think God empowers people today with spiritual gifts as he does in the first century. Uh, and I think I have good grounds to say that. I don't think we should expect people to go around saying, I have this miraculous spiritual gift from God. My answer to the question about whether God could unilaterally do such things, the answer to the question is really, it all depends what you mean by miracle. God is at work in the world. Regardless of how you use the word miracle, let me just say a few true things. God is at work in the world. God does cause things to happen which would not happen absent his intervention. You might not want to call that a miracle because of the misuse and overuse of that word, and you would have my sympathy. But if you want to call that a miracle, by my more modest definition, I think maybe you could. But I think there's an even bigger issue here beyond just quibbling over definitions. Um, I am afraid sometimes that we hold a view that makes us practical deists. Again, deism is the belief that God created the world and he baked into it these natural laws, and now he just sort of lets it run on its own steam without any intervention. Nothing in the Bible teaches us that God has ever been distant or uninvolved in the world, or even uninvolved in natural processes. We need to know that we can ask God for help, and that he has said that he can help, and he wants to help. God is at work in the world, changing hearts, causing kingdoms to rise and fall, healing, bringing about circumstances to advance his purposes, causing things to happen that wouldn't have happened except that he was moved to answer prayer. If you want to call that a miracle, I won't be mad at you. But again, beyond quibbling over definitions, I want to say let's never be afraid to acknowledge God is at work in the world. He answers prayer. 
He acts to deliver. He acts to save. He strengthens his people. He blesses his people. And I'll also add, God is still yet to work the biggest miracle of all. That still lies in the future. In the final day, the greatest worldwide miracle ever will occur. Romans 8 and verse 11. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. That is a miracle by any definition. And it sits at the center of God's eternal plans for us and at the center of our hope. Our hope is bound up in a final and ultimate miracle that is still yet to occur. So that's my crack at that. Thanks for uh, the person who asked that. Uh, I've got to tell you, I surprised myself a little bit on, uh, on what I had to say about it. Maybe there's someone here that needs to come and to solicit God's power. We believe in a God who is real, a God who acts, a God who answers prayer, including our prayers to forgive us, including our appeals to him to save us as we obey his word, as we're baptized through remission of our sins. If there's anyone that needs to come and respond to God's invitation, come forward now as we stand and sing. Is it for me? Magnify and praise thee and